Well, amen and good morning. It's good to see you all again. It's always a joy and a pleasure to come up and be at Grace Bible Church. Talked to Jacob this morning, and uh, his conscience got the better of him. He wanted to have full disclosure. He's actually in Houston at Joel Olstein's church for the Best Life Now <laughs> conference um, against his better job. I'm kidding. Some, I'm getting some blank stares, so I'm 100% kidding. If Jacob were here, he'd, he'd punch me like he normally does. So, no. I uh, just talked to him before I came in. He, he was heading in as I was heading in, and we were praying for one another, and he's excited to serve down in North Carolina, and I'm excited to serve you here. And so thank you again for having me come back. Um, in typical Jacob fashion, I said, what would you like me to preach, brother? He says, I'm going to give you Psalm 9 and 10 together. I said, oh, that seems like a lot. How many verses is that? He's like, it's like 38, 38 verses in 30 minutes, so you can do the math. Um, obviously, instead of doing about a 5,000-foot flyover and really working through every text, we're going to do about a 20,000-foot flyover um, and deal with as much as we can with the time that we have. Uh, so I'm excited. Uh, looking at Psalm 9 and 10 together as, as a literary unit, uh, some commentators separate them, some don't. I think it's right to put them together. Uh, the title of this message is, The Judge of All the Earth Will Do Right. The judge of all the earth will do right. I think that's a very timely and providential message that we need to hear this morning. So let's quickly pray and ask for grace, and we'll dive right in. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, Brother Bowder has served us well this morning with song selections. We have sung wonderful truths. Lord, we just need grace to obey the truth we know. Father, I thank you for Psalm 9 and 10 that presents us with a high and lofty view of who you are. At times like these, personal pain, relational strife, pain on an international scale, certainly a national scale, God, to give us hope, to rescue us from bitterness or self-righteousness, we need to see what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, which is the Lord high and lifted up. Seated on the throne. The year that King Uzziah died, the year that all of our earthly hopes were dashed, I saw the Lord. And we have every reason to believe because of John's testimony that what Isaiah saw was the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a local deity, but the Lord of all the earth. So Father, I pray for every need represented in this room. And every need outside those doors. Would you show us Christ? In your name, amen. As we look at Psalm 9 and 10, the judge of all the earth will do right. I was thinking of Genesis 18. You don't have to turn there. It's where Abraham is pressing his luck, if you will, with the Almighty, where he's negotiating for on behalf and interceding on behalf of Sodom, he says to the Lord, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, Abraham says to the Lord, and then he says this, And this is the old King James Version. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, of course, 
a little bit short-sighted on Abraham's part in the sense that there are none righteous, no, not one. But nevertheless, nevertheless, in a world filled with sin and suffering and pain and a million evils, it is right for the people of God at times to ask, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? How can we not ask such a question in light of murder and rape and child abuse and sex trafficking, the dumpster fire that is Afghanistan right now, sickness, corrupt leaders on both sides of the party aisle? We take in everything we see around us, and of course when we see the wickedness in our own hearts, it is right on some level, and the Psalms teach us to pray this way time and again, to say, O Lord, will you not lift up your hand? We find ourselves like the martyrs under the altar in the book of Revelation saying, How long, O Lord? And it is okay at times for the people of God to pray that way. You cannot get away from it if you read the Psalms honestly. Not with a high hand, not with an arrogant spirit, but with a humble, settled, dependent, submissive attitude. The people of God, like David, like Asaph, Say, O God, will you not do what is right? How long, O Lord, will this earth groan, according to Romans 8? Ultimately, psalms like these, especially the imprecatory psalms that every preacher scratches his head and says, how do I preach a psalm that calls for the destruction of the wicked? What do I say? Well, you preach the word. And you say, oh Lord, either save them or destroy them. Ultimately, these psalms cause us to long for the return of King Jesus. The one who will set every record straight and before whom every knee will bow. The main point that I'll argue for in Psalm 9 and 10, as much as we can cover with the time we have. Dustin, make sure you wave at me when I'm getting around time to be done because I have no idea what time it is. What I'll argue for is this. Wickedness and evil will not ultimately prevail in light of the character of God. In light of the character of God, we have the strong hope that wickedness and evil will not prevail. There's three things that we recognize in the psalm, or at least that the psalmist points us to. The first is this, the sovereignty of the king. The sovereignty of the king. We love the sovereignty of God, not because we want to be fatalist, but because we don't want to lose our minds. I mean, there was a time where I gagged on the pill of God's sovereignty because I thought it would kill my prayer life and kill missions. And now I realize if I do not have a high and lofty view of God's sovereignty, all the way from supernovas to molecules in this world, I'm going to lose my head. I praise God for what Spurgeon said, that there is no maverick molecule in the universe. Hallelujah. The mood in the opening verses is only possible when we have this view of God. Look at verse 1 in chapter 9. And look at the future orientation here of what he's saying. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. 
I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. That's, that's a lot of hope for a guy who, if you look at the totality of the psalm, <clears throat> things are falling apart around him, surrounded by enemies, perplexed by evil and suffering, and yet there is a strong, future-orientated hope in the opening verses, and that is by design. Is he just aloof? Is he just ignorant of reality? I don't think so. It is the holiness of God, it is the sovereignty of God that enables us to rejoice despite our circumstances. When I leave here, I'm going to my home church and I'm preaching Philippians 4, 2 through 9. Rejoice. Again, I will say rejoice. By all things in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, at all times. How? Be a stoic? Achieve some level of ataraxia where you're just impervious to pain? Is that the Christian life? No. How can I give thanks in every situation? Is because we recognize what the psalmist recognizes, and that is that our God is sovereign. He says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. I mean, this could be the sermon. I know we have to press on, but we don't want to miss this. He says, I will recount all your wonderful deeds. What can we recount? In the midst of disease, in the midst of evil, and I've learned not to assume that I know where the people of God are. I'm working on a book right now where I'm taking the testimony of 31 elderly saints at my church and just giving testimony to God's sustaining grace in their lives. And I thought I knew their stories until I sat down with them, sitting across from one brother, settled, joyful, in his late 80s, eyes on heaven, loving Jesus, and I found out his son was murdered in the early 1980s in his basement. How do you have this future-oriented hope? I will give thanks to the Lord. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. What do we recount when things aren't that wonderful? There is one thing we set our minds on. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If this is true, I can handle everything else. And that is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? If that is settled, if I go to bed tonight free from condemnation, and I wake up a Christian not going to hell, everything else takes its proper place. And that is only true if God is indeed sovereign. Look at what else he says in verse 4, chapter 9. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Hop down to verse 7. We see the same theme. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Notice what you don't see. He's not pacing heaven, beloved. When I get nervous, when I got a lot going on, when I'm angst out, and with a neurotic 
soul like me, doesn't take much, I can't sit down. I feel my creatureliness and my fallibility so much that I can't sit down. I pace the floor. Not so with Yahweh. When the world feels like it's falling apart, when you bow your knee beside your bed at 1 a.m., you do not enter into the presence of a nervous, befuddled God. You enter into the presence of the one who is omnipotent and omniscient, the one who Jonathan Edwards says is the eternally happy God. He's never confounded. And it says that he sits enthroned, settled, permanent, How many potentates and little demigods have strewn across this stage, whether it's Pol Pot or Hitler or Bin Laden or on and on and on, and where are they now? Dust and bones. All of their sound and fury has faded into the annals of history and have largely been forgotten. Where is our God When they mock us and say, where is your God? The answer, biblically, is very clear and it is very comforting. He is seated on the throne and he judges the nations with righteousness and equity. He is not confounded. He is not confused. He is not befuddled. And he's certainly not responding to what men are doing. Wickedness and evil will not ultimately prevail in light of the fact that the king is sovereign. Again, verse 5. You have rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. And forgive me for all the hopping around. It's just the way the psalm is structured. Hop down to (laughs) 8. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. And I wrote something in my notes. This was after I'd already printed them, but I just, I just wanted to write this down. When we read these types of statements about our God, we do not believe in henotheism. Like, what are you talking about? Henotheism. The idea that we choose one particular deity out of this pantheon of deities, and that's our local God. You know, whether it's Molech, or Shiva, or whoever, like we choose our deity, that's not how we read this text. That's why I almost broke my television a few years ago listening to Mr. Osteen. I don't normally name drop, but sometimes it's just painfully obvious. He's a heretic. So listening to Osteen on TV, Larry King, I believe it was, a Jew, You've you've got a spokesman for evangelicalism here, air quotes if you're listening online. And he says, "Is, is Jesus the only way to heaven? And notice the sleight of hand. I Jesus is the only way for me. What was that last little prepositional phrase there? That's henotheism. That's paganism. That Jesus is my local deity. He's my way. I mean, you can choose whatever you want, but for me. How degrading. Do we understand what it means when we say the Lord Jesus Christ? It means to the exclusion of every other so-called God. 
He's not just a local deity. He is as it is here. Who else has God seated upon his throne and bestowed the right to judgment? It is the one who can open the seals. It is the Lamb of God who judges not just America, but every nation, every king, every ethnicity. When I was in Mongolia in 2016, on the other side of the world, guess who was reigning over every rock? Jesus Christ. I didn't import my local deity from Minnesota and bring him there. He was there when I got off the plane. That you have rebuked the nations, O God, and you judge the world and you judge the people. It's exactly what we find as Brother Bowder pointed us to the book of Revelation. In Revelation 20, 11, and 12, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This is our God. And look at verse 12. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Who else but a sovereign God can hear blood? What do you mean? Genesis chapter 4. The prototypical homicide with Cain and Abel. What does the Lord say? He says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Forgive me, but I was listening to Johnny Cash on the way home. We went up north to Duluth with the kids over the weekend. And I had the Johnny Cash sampler on. I'm a heathen, I know. But that song came on. He says, you can throw your rock. You can hide your hand. Work against, or work in the dark against your fellow man, but God's going to cut you down. Every drop of blood shed, supposedly in secret, cries out to the Lord God Almighty, and he will make it right. That's what it says in verse 12. You who avenge blood, you do not forget their cry. Only a sovereign God can do this. So one thing that we see, we've not nearly mined enough gold from this text, but we'd be here all day. But one thing that we see that the psalmist is pointing us to is when he opens up his entire diatribe, by saying, I will give thanks, I will recount your wonderful deeds, I will be glad and exult in your name, I will sing praise to your name. Where is this hope grounded? Because from what I can tell, the world's on fire. And he grounds it in the fact that our God is sovereign over every nation, every action, every drop of blood, every iniquity, every wrongdoing, every tear. And on the day he has appointed, and not a second later, he will make it right. Eschatology notwithstanding, when he cracks the sky, it's game over. It's done. We see the sovereignty of the king, and number two, we see the insanity of the wicked. We see the insanity of the wicked. Go to chapter 10, start in verse 1. It says, why, O Lord, now the tone changes. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? 
And then he goes on to explain why he feels this way. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. The wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. Hold on. If I were to describe this person, which if I'm honest, was a lot of my life prior to God saving me. This person is a functional atheist. This is a person who bears witness to the reality of Romans 118. It says, the unrighteous suppress the truth in unrighteousness, for what can be known about God is revealed to them plainly. This is a person who, despite all his sound and fury, all of his, his claims that there is no God, he knows he's working really hard to suppress the truth that there is a God that I must deal with. But I'm pushing that down, and I'm going to live as a functional atheist. This is all too common. And of course, this is nothing new because Dostoevsky in his classic work on the brothers says, if, if, if God is dead, all is permissible. So this is a man who knows that God is there. The law is written on his heart, but he knows if I can kill him, if I can kill God, all is permissible. Meaning, if I can silence my conscience enough to convince myself that he's not actually there, then all is permissible. I can take all the gusto I want. I can shed all the blood I want. I can use and abuse, but I just got to get this conscience quiet. That's a functional atheist. And there are millions of people that live their lives like that every day. And when you see it that way, you realize sin is insane. Look at the attitude of the wicked in verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek the Lord. Verse 6, he says in his heart, look at this. This is where sin takes us. In verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. That's the insanity of sin. It's insane because we know better. And it is insane, not just because of the action itself, but it is insane because of the quality, the ontological quality of the one against whom we sin. I've asked some of my young adults that I teach down at Redeemer, and in various contexts, but I say, would it be awkward? Would it be weird or off-putting? If you and I were walking down the sidewalk and maybe a city maintenance worker was walking by and I hocked a loogie and spit in his face, would that be weird? And they're like, yeah, you're not actually going to do that, are you? I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. But what if 
all these black limousines pulled up and SUVs, and there was a Black Hawk helicopter overhead, and some, and I'm not going <laughs> to, the last thing I'm going to do is say who it is, because I'm sure you're all anticipating what I might say. It's some high decorated political figure. I don't know who it might be. Maybe a military figure. So they walk by, and I do the exact same thing. I hawk a loogie and spit in their face. Is that awkward? And their eyebrows go even higher, and they say, well, yeah. So I just, I did the same thing. It's not like I spit on one and shot the other one. I spit on both of them. So what's the difference? They're both human. Like, yeah, but you're probably going to get charged with like a harder crime or like a, a, a deeper felony for doing this rather than this. Well, why is that? Well, we know why. It's because of the character and the authority of the person against whom I have sinned. You beat me up and spit on me, that's one thing. You do it to a police officer, you get an aggravated felony. Why? Because of the authority that they represent. That's why sin, when I read this, I cringe and I go, this is not some local mayor, this is not some local potentate or little demigod, this is the God of Isaiah 6. This is the God of the world. This is the one that every time somebody, like Isaiah, sees a vision of his throne, what does Isaiah say? I got a lot of questions for you. No. That is not what the wicked will say in the presence of Almighty God. You're not going to go slug him in the shoulder and say, I got some questions for you. No, no, no. What does he say? I am undone. Oy vey. I am mentally, physically disintegrating and being pulled apart at the seams. Why? Because I have seen God. That's who we sin against. When we go back and read a text like this, it, it actually gives me more compassion for the wicked to say, what are you doing? Stop. Lay down your arms while you have time. You have no idea the character of the one against whom you are sinning. And this one sees everything down to the level of your thoughts and intents. Please, for God's sake, literally, lay down your arms. That's the heart of evangelism. It is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It is submit, lay down your arms. There is, a, there is an hour of peace offered to you now. Lay down your arms. King Jesus does not stand at the doorway of your heart wringing his hat in his hands. He is seated on the throne and he commands you to repent and believe the gospel. But this is the insanity of the wicked. Look at verse 7. The wicked's mouth is filled with cursing. Brother Brad just talked about this. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net the helpless are crushed, they sink down, they fall by his might. And look at verse 11, the height of insanity, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he'll never see. Perhaps Dostoevsky was on to something. If God is dead, all is permissible. 
Beloved, why, why do we linger on a text like this? It's because I want to help you do what the Lord has said to help me do many times, and that is to fight what I call the Asaph syndrome. The Asaph syndrome, what do you mean? Go back to verse 1 of chapter 10. Look how he starts off. Now we know, compared to what he says in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that this probably isn't how he actually feels. But these are the words of a scared and frustrated, fallible man. He says in verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Compared to chapter 9, I know that he doesn't actually believe that. But when you're really hurt and scared, do you pray some things that your theology knows better? But you say it anyway. It's exactly what we see. Why do you stand far away? This is exactly what Asaph says in Psalm 73, 2 and 3. He says, as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Beloved, that's why the Psalms are so important for our spiritual diet. So I encourage you. You might know theologically that God is sovereign, wickedness will not ultimately prevail, but when we go back and read these texts, I just want to challenge you. Study Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 40, where you get a clear glimpse of the sovereignty and character of Almighty God. Study Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 40 more then you spend time watching the news. Just think about it. Check your screen time. How much time do I spend watching the news versus how much I spend studying the attributes of God? And in that comparison, you might find the root of most of your anxiety and fear. When, I, when the people of God in Isaiah's day were being threatened by the Assyrians, political intrigue, all the same garbage we deal with today, what was the word from heaven? Behold your God. In this psalm, we see the sovereignty of the king, the insanity of the wicked, and finally, and very quickly, Dustin's giving me the evil eye. No? I saw your eyebrow go up. All right. I got to preach at 1030, so. (laughs) We see the intensity of the saints. The sovereignty of God, of the king, the insanity of the wicked, and finally we see the intensity of the saints. I wish I had more time, but I think Christians often struggle to know what to do with imprecatory psalms. How do we read a psalm like this? Look at chapter 9, verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. 
For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. What do you do with that? (laughs) How do you pray that as a Christian? And I think this is where Paul helps us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. We don't read these psalms and walk away with a a vindictive, mean spirit. That's not how you want to read the psalms. You walk away and say, yeah, I want God to torch them all. I want God to torch Nineveh, and I'm just going to sit here and watch him do it. Like That's not how you read those psalms. But there is, there is, there is a place in the Christian life to hear Paul say, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. You're not a vigilante, but leave it. To the wrath of God. That's New Testament. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That is so striking to me. That is New Testament, this side of the cross, for the Christian church. He says, what is the antidote against bitterness and fear and vengefulness and spitefulness in a world where there's a million pains How do I fight it? What does the Apostle Paul say? Leave it to the love of God? No. He says, beloved, leave it to the wrath of God. He will do right. The psalmist cries out for justice very quickly. Verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. He knows I have no right to demand this of you. I'm asking for grace. I have sinned too. Psalmist is not ignorant of that fact. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 9. You who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises. This shows that he ultimately wants God to be glorified in his justice. He doesn't just want to be vindicated. Let me go to chapter 10 verse 16. It says the Lord is king forever and ever. And the nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. There's an intensity to this prayer. This is not a high-handed, vindictive, mean, self-righteous prayer. But this is an intense prayer. From a godly man that says, I'm asking for you to be gracious to me because I know I'm a sinner too. But I'm also asking you to flex your arm, O God, and make this right. For the wicked seem to be getting away with murder left and right. John Calvin said this, the best stimulus which the saints have to prayer is when in consequence of their own necessities, they feel the greatest disquietude. And are all but driven to despair until faith comes to their aid. Sometimes our best prayers are when we feel exactly what the psalmist feels. I know God is sovereign. I got the right theology in my head. But existentially, it seems like the whole world is aflame. Calvin says sometimes that is where the sweetest and most God-honoring and fervent and intense prayer happens. Beloved, the judge of all the earth will execute perfect justice. He will do right. 
He will always do what is right by his blood-bought children, including the destruction of our enemies. Psalm 9 and 10, save us from the dangers of the Asaph syndrome. When I was envious of the arrogance and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, I almost slipped. No. No. We need to see the sovereignty of the king, the insanity of the wicked. And we need to give ourselves permission to pray with intensity at times like this. Sometimes we are far too proper in our prayers. We would blush to hear some of the psalmists cry out to God. Ultimately, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. It assures us of three things. Number one, the justice that we ourselves deserve has been satisfied. Number two, the cross assures us that the most wicked person in the world who repents can and will be forgiven. And finally, number three, the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that all who refuse to bow the knee to Christ will ultimately receive perfect and divine justice. So I ask you three questions. Are you living like a functional atheist? I went to church many times faking it. (laughs) I went to church many times hungover. Pushing it down. I knew the whole time, every time I cracked a bottle, I knew it was wrong. But I pushed it down. I pushed it down. And I lived like a functional atheist. I said in my heart, in my arrogance, God will not see. Beloved, I plead with you on behalf of Psalm 9 and 10, if that's where you're at today, young or old, wake up. He sees and he will avenge. But by God's grace, there is a day of mercy and peace offered to you now. That the blood of Christ will cover your sins. Don't live like a functional atheist. You can can fake it with everyone else, but before God, you stand naked and exposed. Perhaps you've thought, well, yeah, but I've gone too far. No, you have not. If you're alive and breathing today, and you can hear my voice, God is telling you to turn from it. And come to Christ, and you will be able to say, no matter how vile, there is therefore now no condemnation for me, because by faith alone I am in Christ. So come. And also for the wounded saints. You've been wounded by this world. Sometimes it's just the the ickiness of the world. It's nothing in particular, but it's just the weight of a fallen world. You feel like you can't breathe. And some of you, you have, because you love Jesus and because you have a tender conscience, you've never really prayed this way. I just want to encourage you. I'm not encouraging you to sin in your anger. Don't go that far. But my goodness, if you read the Psalms honestly, beloved, and you read Romans 12, and you read the warp and woof of the New Testament, it is okay to kneel down by your bed and say, Lord, chapter 9, I will praise you and I will exult in you because you are good. Chapter 10, what is going on? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, why have you forsaken me? What is going on? How long, O oh Lord? How long? That is not disrespectful if it is done from a heart of faith. So maybe unleash yourself in prayer a little bit, beloved, and cry out to your Father.
King Jesus, the judge of all the earth, will make everything right. Trust him, be patient, pour out your heart in prayer, and rest in his sovereignty. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and I thank you, Lord, for this morning. I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters. This is a huge text, and we haven't barely got into it, but what we do see is the fact that you are sovereign and that the wicked will not always prosper. And Lord, if we're honest, we know that wickedness dwells in all of our hearts, and so these psalms do two things for us, and we are grateful for both. They keep us from self-righteousness and arrogance as if we've never sinned, but it also gives us great hope to know that history is not perpetually cyclical, that it is moving to a close, and that everything done in secret will be made known. So if my brethren in this church, Lord, have been wounded, or if they're grieving for brothers and sisters across the world that are being wounded right now, God, save us from the Asaph syndrome of our feet slipping because we're envious of the arrogant because they seem to get away with it. They will not. Their sins will either be paid for by Christ on the cross, and that's our hope, or they will be paid for on their heads in hell. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.